Good morning, everybody. I'd like to welcome you all to the Daily Energy Markets podcast. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined today by Mark Ostwald, Chief Economist and Global Strategist at ADM Investor Services International, Bill Spindle, Senior Global Correspondent at Cypher News, and Laurie Haythan, MENA Director at Natural Resources Governance Institute. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us. Um, Medlin, if we could have the results of those couple of survey questions we've had this week, I just wanted to go to Laurie um, for first comments uh, about OPEC, really, and what it might be facing um, in, at its meeting later this month. You know, it's obviously, uh, you know, trying to fight uh, the, the tide, if you like, of the current market, which seems to be that supply is is, is dampening any any effort to to try and keep this uh this price above $80 or sentiment perhaps is dampening that. So Laurie, what do you think is they're likely to do? I mean, this week it's turned, the conversation has turned to not will they extend, but will they have to cut more uh, in the first quarter? And do you think they'll do that um, or, 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 or wait it out a bit more? Uh, we started with the hard question yes. of guessing what uh, OPEC and OPEC plus and Saudi Arabia want to do. I think like, uh, there is what Saudi Arabia wants to do and can do, and there is OPEC, what they can do and want to do, and there is OPEC plus what they can do and what to do. So if you can align all of these, you can have a decision. If you cannot align, align all the incentives all all, I will have you might have like individual decisions and the way that we have seen uh, so far from the uh, Saudis. So uh, again, uh, based on what Saudis say, that they look at the market and not at how they want to see the price of uh, uh, of oil based on their economy. Uh, it, it seems like uh, the economy worldwide is not going well. Uh, we were all waiting to, to for China's recovery for months and months. We said about the second quarter, the third, the fourth quarter, the second half of the year, all of that, and it didn't come. And now sp- people are speaking about recession. Uh, in the in OECD countries in Europe, even like when they were saying that the U.S. is doing fine now, there is talk of that. All of that is not good news. So that they will t- take into consideration that. And looking at the fact that there is a war in the in the region and it didn't affect much uh, uh, the prices. So looking into that, they will look into all these factors, and I think they will decide on uh, what decision they will take. Okay, I mean, Mark, let's just take one point there that Laurie mentioned, which is about the sort of economic situation of the world, if you like. I mean, we have, you know, obviously people as we've approached the end of this year have have accepted that we haven't seen, you know, even a shallow recession in the US yet. We have seen obviously that in Europe. But what is the sentiment as we get to the end of the year with 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 what we're expecting from the US economy, from the China economy, from Europe next year? I mean, is it going to be more or less a balanced picture as we saw this year or, or another year of two halves or, or where do you see things falling right now? Um, well, I, I think there's two different things here. There's what the market wants, which is um, particularly the financial markets rather than the energy market, which is as ever willful, full of wishful seeing, full of willful blindness. Uh, they've been on the wrong narrative on recession for what, 14 months, 15 months. So um, we'll probably have to give Mr. Market um, you know, a two out of 10 for their, their view on the global economy so far. Um, in terms of, yeah, elsewhere, I think most people should probably remain fairly agnostic. Um, I think that the situation is that, you know, whatever recession we might have, and it looks very likely in Europe and the UK, 
um, uh, is likely to be a shallow one. The US is going to slow markedly mm. in, in the, the fourth quarter of this year. I mean, let, let's make no mistake about that. Household savings have been run down. Mm. Uh, there are additional costs, uh, <clears throat> um, particularly things like um, insurance sector. Is, uh, yeah, the costs have gone up, particularly for US households. Um, <clears throat> China is sort of a case in point, because I think that the relevance of China going into recession or not is not you know, this year has proved to be some something of a spurious discussion. You know, the fact of the matter is Chinese oil demand has held up really well this year. Um, and that's reflective to me largely of the fact that refining capacity elsewhere has been run down so badly. And uh, China and, you know, also India and, and indeed GCC countries have basically stolen the march in terms of refining capacity. Mm. So we've got sort of, we then turn the story into crude, um, and product uh, demand, uh, product demand, uh, you know, I, I, th I think is probably where the weakness will be. Uh, <clears throat> but it's not going to be the sort of level of weakness that you know de demands a $10, $15 fall in oil prices. The, the problem is what we've got at the moment with these very sharp moves in oil prices is the evidence that underlying liquidity, not only in the energy market, but also in equity markets and bond markets is really very, very poor. And I think it's going to stay poor through to January. OK, but Bill, uh, morning again. Let's just go on that point of sort of, um, you know, oil oil prices and, and why, you know, we've seen them, uh, you know, drop. I mean, I suppose they stabilized a little bit in the last week or two. Um, you know, again, from the sort of OPEC uh, angle but again more from the sort of revenue angle for the gulf economies let's say you know do you think there's some concern building up there that um you know saudi's been taking all the brunt doing all the voluntary cuts really there was a comment yesterday on on the podcast that you know if they're going to cut more volumes then really others are going to have to join that that bandwagon do you agree with that or do you think saudi can continue to hold that mantle if we need to go further well i think saudi is in a in, in something of a bind it, it it, as it cuts production, it is definitely hitting its economy. You saw that uh, in in the last quarter, and they, and yet there really is no other leader in uh, in in OPEC. The UAE is planning on actually increasing production early next year. Um, others are are simply you know way below their quotas. They're not in any position to to carry the weight. So at the end of the day, I think it really does fall on Saudi, but they're in a tough spot. Because they uh, increasingly they have a lot of expenditures at home as part of their big vision 2030 uh, diversification plan, and they need that money. But at the same time, there really is no other, you know, leadership in in OPEC uh, to do it. Okay, uh, Laurie, just back to you on 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 the on the sort of uh, the, the the security concerns. Let's say around the conflict. In the region, and we did have uh, an incident this 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 week with with a you know a, a purported um, you know uh, attack or, or uh, by the Houthis in, in the Red Sea on a vessel on an Israeli vessel. You know the first evidence that we're going we've seen a bit of physical activity, if you like, uh, maritime on maritime security, perhaps resulting from what we're seeing being done in in Gaza. Um, so. Any any thoughts there on you know where that sort of pr risk premium is going? As, as we said, as you said earlier, you know that that's been dropping, and OPEC has seen that happen in terms of price impact. But I mean, where are we at in terms of sentiment? With where you know we could possibly see 
a threat to oil supplies if this escalates any further or if it if it doesn't if it isn't resolved uh, look that uh, that capture of the vessel by the Houthis was uh, is something to to be worried about and to see how uh, they will continue or escalate in in that in that matter because what they've tried to do the Houthis from at least from where they're standing and uh, geographically and threatening Israel on the Red Sea so so and as you know, they were rockets fired by the Houthis, intercepted by the by the Saudis in the Red Sea. And the Red Sea is very sensitive. So they were trying to to reach Elat. Elat was one of the three main ports of Israel where it gets imports and exports, definitely. But lately they were getting, when they closed Ashkelon, which was under the threat of Hamas, uh, so they were diverting all the uh, the, the fly of uh, the uh, the um, uh, all the, the the commerce was tra- was going into Ilat uh, at least for their imports of uh, oil and oil products. So, uh, but again, it's not only about Israel itself uh, being like all its ports being under the attack of Hamas or the Houthis or Hezbollah and, and Haifa, which Hezbollah didn't attack yet or didn't announce any uh, uh, um, intention to attack. But it's not only a story of. Uh, of Israel's economy, because the Red Sea, as you know, is very important for the Saudis and is very important for the uh, uh, for the Egyptians as well. And and Naom is on that Red Sea and all the security around that and all the um, uh, the potential that Naom has and all the vision is built on Naom. So seeing that there are attacks like Babel Mandab becoming like very sensitive in the hands of Houthis that they can take things into matter does mean a lot. And it will be something that they will look into it. But again, uh, what we were saying and what was said, at least in the podcast, by many other uh, experts, that uh, maybe the the uh, the Israel-Palestine war didn't have a big effect on gas, on oil and gas, but there are these kind of things like physical attacks on boats, on ships, etc. So now it is like just a, a, a commercial ship. But who says that it won't escalate if the war continues escalating? into physical attacks, into more than just commercial ships, more into like tankers, etc. So that would be really uh, something uh, that will scare the market, of course, and bring the prices up. Yeah, yeah. Mark, um, let's just talk a bit about, again, so back to economy, but but more specifically about Fed and Fed policy. Um, you know, there, there does seem to be two points of view at the moment uh, in, in the markets that, you know, the Fed is done, uh, but it's sort of higher for longer, but where we're at. Uh, and others say, no, actually, we're definitely going to see a cut in rates next year as we see the sort of recessionary signals strengthen, if you like, in the U.S. economy. Um, is is the Fed stuck between a rock and a hard place? I mean, what, what can it do next? Do you think it's just going to hold its ground? Inflation is coming down, but not quite to where we want it. What's the likely scenario next year on that front? Um, I think, Mia, personally, I I don't think the Fed's going to be cutting before the second half of next year. Um, Much depends on the evolution of core inflation in the States, which has remained stubborn. It also remains stubborn in UK, in Japan, um, in Eurozone. And that's going to be important because it is where real rates are and markets have not done themselves actually a big favor here um with the rally in bond in bonds of late um it's where real rates are that's going to matter to the fed most thus 
if we see inflation getting back, um, particularly core inflation, back to two and a half percent, then that would, you know, and you know, we, we've got, you know, the Fed funds rate still at five and a quarter, five and a half. Then the Fed will basically say we've got room to cut because they don't want to see real inflation, real interest rates much above 2%. They consider 2% to be sufficiently restrictive. And that's the metric. Uh, you know, markets obviously wanted to know all about timing. But when? When? You know, it's always, but yeah, when? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be when the inflation metric meets that particular, you know, um, <clears throat> calculation. And, you know, that's difficult to predict, uh, particularly with the volatility that we're seeing in energy prices. Yeah. And I suppose, you know, we've got to accept that the Fed has become, you know, OPEC has become like the federal Fed has become like OPEC, you know, that, that, that you know, when, when be patient, we'll tell you one month at a time, uh, uh, stop trying to predict too much into the future, specifically with all these variables that are that are quite unique. Um, Bill, let's talk a bit about COP28. That's coming up uh, in, in less than 10 days time, starting here in the UAE, hosted here at the UAE. Um, we had a headline on the bulletin today about expectations around COP from the oil and gas sector. But generally speaking, what do you expect the UAE as a host to deliver at the end of it? Um, you know, are we going to have a more successful COP than the last two that we've seen in terms of more concrete, actionable uh, uh, points or, or, you know, just more of the same? Well, I think, you know, you will be managing two really big underlying tensions. One is between the, the global stock take, which is going to, you know, obviously show that the world is way, way further behind than, than before, even in terms of fighting uh, climate change balanced against, you know, the real reluctance to opposition um, from many uh, to some sort of a phase down in fossil fuels or a phase out in fossil fuels. That's one big tension. Uh the other one is going to be sort of global north, global south uh, in terms of financing. Those two things are kind of related. Uh, you know, in, in a sense, those are both unresolvable, huge issues that are, are, are not going to get resolved in any uh, final way for sure. Uh, but, you know, I do think there's ways to deliver something that will look successful. And I, and I think that really comes down to um, a a significant renewables pledge. You know, this is the tripling of renewable energy. Um, if the UAE can push that through in conjunction with a financing package of, you know, both funds, but also reforms to the global uh, multilateral banking system, other things, some sort of a financing package that looks capable of delivering that tripling of renewables. So those are two big things that it could come through on. And then I think really uh, the other thing is methane. Uh, that That is probably the most the single thing that the oil and gas industry could do to give itself some actual credibility um, is to, to come up with some sort of pretty solid uh, agreement on methane. There's been some some progress on that front. China mentioned methane didn't set any goals, but for the first time, it's sort of addressing methane. And I think that generally the oil and gas industry is coming around to the view that there's really no escaping uh, accountability for a lot of this, given a lot of new technologies and um, regulations yeah. that are in place. And would you be would you be in the camp of uh, the, the 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 sort of geopolitical uh you know uh situation between russia ukraine and now of course in the region uh and what that could possibly lead to do you think that that has 
accelerated or de decelerated so the energy transition expenditure and momentum you know you've got two two sides of the camp they're having people saying that oh energy security is now up front and center uh, so you know forget the transition for now and others are saying no it's taught us that we've got to speed this up uh, the transition so where where, where do you think the reality the reality lies there in terms of yeah, I think the reality actually is not quite as stark a contrast as it as it appears at first. I think the the uh, reaction, uh, certainly in Europe and many other places, has been to uh, China as well is to boost uh, renewable energy and move the energy transition forward, at least from the renewable side and alternatives <laughs> to uh, <clears throat> more volatile fossil fuels to remove that forward as fast as possible, while at the same time emphasizing that energy security requires uh, a lot of reserves of fossil fuels. So you see a situation like in China where uh, where coal plants are being you know, approved uh, kind of by the dozen almost, um, and yet renewable energy, particularly solar, but also wind and nuclear are hitting, you know, just absolutely eye-popping records every year. And that's really that 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 both things are happening at once, right? They're yeah. they're saying we want the coal capacity there to use if we need it for security, but at the same time, we're going to build on our renewables as fast as we can possibly build them too. And that's, you know, kind of kind of be the balance going forward. And to bring that back to COP, that's where this renewable energy pledge, I think, could probably get some traction. Whereas some sort of a phase out on fossil fuels or a phase down on fossil fuels, you know, that'll dominate the debate, but clearly isn't, there's not going to be any, any agreement on that. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, China's other big pushes on EVs, isn't it? It's kind of multiplying its, its, its electric vehicle. Laurie, I mean, you're like Mark based in Europe. Uh, again, what, what is the expectation from COP from the European sort of country momentum uh, commitment um, you know, Europe has been ahead of the curve and ahead of the game in terms of pushing transition. But of course, it's been most impacted by the Russia-Ukraine situation from an energy security point of view. So, you know, where, where's where's Europe's head at, if you like, in that, in that conversation? Uh, yeah, definitely. As you said, like Europe was really big on energy transition and they are still big on energy transition. And for them, uh, supported by the IEA, uh, documents and reports, etc. It was like no, this energy security problem has uh, has put more emphasis on on energy transition and especially on renewables because they felt that this is there uh, to break with the dependence on Russian gas or any kind of energy. It's like uh, for people to push for energy transition, and that had been uh, a lot of talk uh, last year and. Uh, since the Ukraine war had started pushing for that. So, but at the same time, like member states and the EU had to take action like for short term. So Italy had to go to Algeria and sign deals with Algerians, with the Libyans for gas, uh, for gas. But uh, these are like the short term, let's say until 2030, if we want to talk about short term for Europe. But the longer term is like to continue and to push, to push. And basically what we're having today is like you have one camp that is pushing about like the need to phase out from fossil fuel. And on the other side, this energy crisis and the Ukraine-Russia crisis had brought back the people, the energy people to say that, yes, we understand about it. And we acknowledge that there is energy transition that is happening. We're not sure it's happening in the same pace that Europe thinks it is happening. Maybe, yes, there is a plateau that is coming to come with peak demand uh, in oil and in, in gas, etc. But it doesn't mean that that plateau, that after that, there is like a very, very fast uh, a decrease 
uh, it could it could stay for 30 years, etc. They don't see a change in the system. So, and this is what is happening. And this is what is going again to go to COP28 with people saying that you cannot only focus on decarbonizing the oil and gas sector, especially. You cannot only work on cutting emissions, on technologies, on CCUS, etc. You need to have commitments on really cutting fossil fuel production. And the other camp is saying, as long as the system is not set yet, and as long as we see demand and demand growing, so we need to, uh, to for the safety and security of the world, we need to keep on producing, but we do understand what we need to put a lot of money on new technologies, etc. And there is there was a Reichstag, a Reichstag report yesterday that says, if you want to reach 1.6, so Reichstag is always like very realistic, they don't even speak about the 1.5. They're saying, if you want to reach 1.6, we can do it because the 12 technologies that they assess, they said they have potential, which means there is a lot of money that needs to be put there. And the Saudis and the UAE in the MENA have the means. They are the only two countries that have the, really the financial means to really invest in these new technologies to advance the energy transition, at least uh, at least uh, in, in our region, in the MENA region. So I'll be, uh, I'm, so I'm happy that I will be in COP28 this time, this year. And hopefully we can discuss all of these in person and whoever is there, I'll be very happy uh, to meet as well the first week. Yeah, we look forward to seeing you there. No, absolutely, it will be. It's going to be a very interesting meeting. Um, Mark, you mentioned about um, China demand uh, and that, you know, the beginning that we're talking about how that is now superseding the pr price activity. Um, I was just about to ask you about China. So our survey question's just gone up. Um, it's left it too little, too late, or too late to any, for any boost, more boost in government expenditure to bring back consumer confidence next year. Agree or disagree? So China has been obviously committing some funds to try, and, and you know, it's done a few um, uh, changes uh, in, in its in its real estate policy uh, and trying to sort of ease that situation. But has it sort of? Is it too late to sort of? For it to sort of spend its way out of the out of the crisis, demand has been healthy. Mark, you said it's been not bad coming from China, but what about what's still to come? It has some really deep economic problems, doesn't it, in terms of sectors? It, it has some deep debt problems. So does the rest of the world. Um, I think if we go back to COP twenty eight just briefly, I think if if uh, if the whole group actually committed to making sure we have the capacity in renewables before they start setting targets for cutting hydrocarbon output we might be actually on a more constructive path because without that cut without that increase in in, in renewables capacity we're not going anywhere but that's by the by as for china they are doing precisely that they are building out their capacity <laughs> you know this is the whole point when we're watching and marveling at the fact that they are world leaders in renewables technology it's because they are you know they have realized that that's what needs to be done but for the broader economy yes the property sector remains an ice hole and the property sector is so interlinked with the banking sector um <clears throat> and they've got a lot of government debt um will spending more um i it's it, it's not about spending. Well, to a certain extent, it's about spending. It's about resolving this issue of um, the fact that the property sector's balance sheet is so appalling and the impact on the banking sector is obviously a huge, you know, they're having to do write downs, loan loss provisions for all of this. Um, and, you know, of course, some people will question whether it's 
actually open and honest. That's a little bit by the by. Uh, until they actually start resolving those balance sheet problems, there's not going to be a lot of confidence. I just can't see it. Um, yeah, but before they provide incentives to boost consumer purchases, particularly of property and indeed business businesses, they need to resolve those problems because without that, everyone's going to say, yes, but what am I actually buying into here? Because there's enough properties which have been sold off plan in China and uh, are not happening. Um, and that is that really undermines confidence. Yeah, I suppose they've got to, they've got to convince everybody and get get that confidence back, if you like, into the economy. So it's 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 a work in progress. Um, Bill, in terms of um, the outlook for for China as a demand center, I mean, and and from the Gulf economy and Gulf producers' point of view, um, you know, and we've seen obviously the divergence in these demand projections between OPEC and IEA, etc. Talking their own book, perhaps all of them, but. Um, you know, should 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 Gulf producers be nervous about that? Should they be nervous also about the non-OPEC supply that has increasingly come on stream this year and is you know set to continue next year? Yeah, I think China. You know, the dilemma there is is really comes down to to what extent are they going to push forward with kind of rebalancing their whole economy towards a more consumer spending thing? And that is a long-term project that, in the short term really requires pulling back and not doing this sort of traditional blowout, uh, you know, government re re infrastructure spending type of stimulus. So I think that's really the balance they, they continue to have to draw is to what extent are we pushing forward with this, with this rebalancing, which is where they still seem to be putting the emphasis. That's why they're re reluctant to put together another gargantuan infrastructure package. Um, so I think that's, they're pretty clear they're going to forge ahead with that. And I think that's going to be a drag on, on Chinese growth going forward for quite a number of years, really. Um, uh, and they'll have to balance that against, you know, just how much do they want growth or are willing to let growth sort of tail off. Uh, so that's going to have implications over, over a longer term. But they're also, I mean, in a way, counterintuitively cracking down on the new sector of the economy, you know, the tech uh, you know, getting too big, um, other other sort of companies that they, they feel they want to, you know, kind of keep under control. So they kind of shoot themselves in the foot, you know, trying to sort of make this transition in their economy while while clamping down on anyone who's getting too big. Um, that's the survey result for now. Agree, disagree. That's pretty close. 56% um, say it's probably too late for it to, to bring back consumer confidence as soon as as soon as uh 2024, 44% uh, disagree. Laurie, let me just go to you um, back to sort of not geopolitics, but sanctions. Let's just talk a little bit about um, that uh, to close off today. We saw some talk and reports that they're going to, you know, going to get more stringent on sanctioning Russian oil on the Dan in the Danish Straits and whether that's going to make any difference to the market. We've also had the US the last couple of weeks, you know, talking in about getting strict about Iranian oil flows, which it's let go uh, for a while to China uh, specifically. So do you see those threats, if you like, really coming through and will it make any difference to the actual oil flowing? Uh, so I don't think they will come through. Uh, and on top of that, uh, today, Iran, the Iranian ministry, Minister of Oil announced that by March 2024, their production will reach 3.6 million uh, barrels per day. So... <laughs> it will come true or not, I don't know. But I think 
what we are seeing that today Iran is really playing for the future of its economy by not entering into the war and by not letting Hezbollah go into an escalation more than what is happening on the borders between Israel and Lebanon. And this, the Americans will really, we really uh, uh, not forget it for them. Uh, and then, so they are buying their future today by the position they are sitting there. So they don't take this uh, at this this talk about like sanctioning again Iranians, mm. etc. They 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 understand that this is in the public, and it's something. And and the closer we get to 2024 and the elections in the states, everything will be in the lens of elections. Uh, so, but I think that at least from the Iranian side, they feel that today they are buying their future, and they see it like a good one without sanctions because of their position in the war. Uh, on uh, on Russia, I guess, like nothing much, much to say. I, I've been w- more focusing on the Middle East and what was happening than on, on, the, on Russia. But I think like uh, for, uh, for, uh, for Europe today, they're like uh, now uh, more focused on getting through winter uh, and then less talking about like if there is flow of money going into the coffers of the Ukrainian, of the Russians, etc. So it's they're more preoccupied about their uh, internal stuff, and they have elections as well soon next year. Everybody has elections, so that's going yeah. to take take precedence on on everyone's priorities. Thanks so much, Laurie. Thank you again to Mark uh, and Bill for joining us this morning, uh, uh, and have a great day, everyone.